So let's start by opening our Bibles to Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 3. As Jesus did often, Jesus took our conventional ideas of modern social constructions or their modern social constructions and turned them on their head. Jesus is going to turn their idea of family on its head. And we're going to do that this morning here as well. Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 31. And his mother and his brothers, Jesus' mother and brothers, came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus defines family, mother, sister, brother, by obedience to the Father. And we know that we can only be obedient because of the work of the Spirit in us. So our idea of family and our idea of obedience is completely dependent on and coming from the work of God. Because it is the Spirit who regenerates us, makes us born again into God, and declares our adoption. Because this has to set up where we're going this morning. So I want us to look at the doctrine of adoption. If you have not heard this, then you need to understand that coming to Christ does mean forgiveness for your sins. It does mean new life. It does mean eternal life. It does mean a new calling on your life. But it also means a new identity, a new family, a new concept of brother, sister, mother, a new father in heaven. And this drives how we deal with one another, our interpersonal relationships, how we solve problems, and how we should look within the church. We must start with the words of Jesus as we always should. And usually right after Jesus we go to Paul because Paul unpacks it a little bit more. So turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, this great chapter on the Christian life. The life in the Spirit. And Paul unpacks this idea of family and the doctrine of adoption. Chapter 8. I'm going to pick up in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. This is an, an absolute statement. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. This will drive our conversation this morning. For you do not receive, excuse me, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back in his fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit's work within us, yes, means new life, but it means adoption. It means that you were an orphan. It means that you had no inheritance. You had no family name. You had no identity of your own. You were lost, but you have been brought in to the home of the judge who declared you righteous, the home of the king who reigns over all earth, the home of the father who loves his sons and daughters very well. Let's go on. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. An heir means that you have a stake in the family riches. That means that you have an inheritance with the firstborn son. 
It is an honor to be called a son because in this culture, only sons could receive that inheritance. In Christ Jesus, whether you are male or female, you are a son. Adoption means that you have an inheritance with Christ. That the Spirit has bound us to Him in such a way that we are now His and bear His name, just like an adopted child will when they are brought into the home. And this governs everything, especially when we deal with our interactions with one another. And under this, the idea of adoption being brought into the family of God is where Paul makes his appeal. He's going to make his appeal on behalf of one brother to another brother, on behalf of one heir to another heir. But our our culture struggles with this because there's a a lie of, of liberalism that says that we have a universal fatherhood in God and a universal brotherhood in man. This is an enlightenment lie that says that being made in the image of God means that we are all children of God. Now, the Bible never uses this language. When I hear people say, and many Christians, out of ignorance, say, oh, we are all children of God. No, we're not. It's very clear here that those who are led by the Spirit are sons. Those who are united to Christ are children, and this makes us distinct from the rest of the world. Now, God is the Lord of all, over all creation, but he is a father to his own. And there is a distinction when you are adopted into the family, and that means you adopt the rules of the household. If you adopt a child, they no longer can live the way that they lived apart from your family. When they come into your house, they live under your rules. They have your family morals, your family ethics, your family expectations, and all the blessings that come along with that. And that's what happens when we're adopted. We're brought into a family where all the expectations, all the ethics, and all the morals are placed on us because now we sit at the dinner table of our Father. Our Father has expectations for us. This is different from the world. This is different from those who are children of destruction. But also many Christians struggle with this. This is understandable, but it's tough because many Christians still put blood before spirit, still say that my unbelieving relatives are real family, but other Christians, I can keep at arm's length. Jesus, who loved his mother very much, who from the cross tells John, take this woman to be your mother, make sure that she's cared for, who loves his brothers very much, but says, who are my mother and my sister and my brothers? Those who do the will of God. We are brought into a new family and our identity changes. Not that we don't love our blood family who does not know you, but we have been brought into an eternal family. Your blood family will die. And apart from Christ, you will never be united to them. But if you are united in Christ, you will live with your brothers and sisters with Christ forever. That's why when we have trivial differences here and divisions in this life, we can approach them in that way because we know we have eternity ahead of us. These things are a small momentary affliction instead of the eternal weight of glory. So on the outset, I have to say this. If you are standing here and your faith is in Jesus Christ, you are reconciled to God. And you are reconciled to him, adopted into his family, and we must be reconciled to one another. But if your faith is not in Jesus Christ, if you do not know him, I am appealing to you, be reconciled to God. Because apart from Jesus, God is not your father, Jesus is not your your brother, and you cannot expect a reconciliation like this. Apart from being a child of God, you are a child of destruction. Deshaun touched on earlier the importance of evangelism. Evangelism is important because when you look in someone's eye, you're not trying to win an argument. You're trying to say you are lost apart from Jesus Christ. 
There is no hope outside of him. You cannot pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You cannot expect peace. You cannot expect comfort. There is no hope apart from an eternal hope. And so my appeal this morning is for those of us who are in Christ to wear that identity and understand that we are adopted into his family and those who are not, that you would be reconciled to God, cry out to him. Because he will save you. Come to Jesus, trust in him. He sent his spirit. He will save you, he will give you his spirit, who will give you knowledge of him, who will teach you everything that you need to know, and the spirit will give you lungs to cry out like a baby, Abba, Father. I'm now in my father's house. So as we open up this letter that's urging reconciliation, this new humanity, this new identity that we have in Christ supersedes all other things, gender, ethnicity, social class, all those things we addressed in Colossians. Now we're going to see how this plays out. And there's a reconciliation that Christ does, but a ministry that is given to us. One more passage in 2 Corinthians before we get into our text. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians, it's a, it's a book of encouragement. But look at the encouragement and the challenge here that is given in chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Christ's work, the end was not just to reconcile him to us to himself. That would be enough. But we are called in this ministry of reconciliation. The word to reconcile means to put back together what has been broken. That is what we do when we declare the gospel. That is what we do when we declare unity in the church. We take what is broken, what is affected by the fall, and put it back together. As new creatures in Christ, we have been given this ministry. That is, this ministry of reconciliation, verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Forgiveness means that we have been entrusted with not only salvation and eternal life, but the message of reconciliation, the gospel that reconciles man to God. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We do not think highly enough of our calling. We are ambassadors for Christ. We represent the kingdom of our king. We represent his name and his nation, and we declare it to the world. We are his ambassadors, God making his appeal through us. Think about that. Every time we open our mouths to share the gospel, it is not us making the appeal. It is God making the appeal through us. He just uses our vocal cords, his spirit in us, bringing to new life the spirit in others. That is what evangelism is. It is God making his appeal through us. So when you think that you are not worthy to speak, you are not worthy to share the gospel, you do not have the words to articulate. It is God who works. It is God who appeals. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. First things first, you can't understand any of this if you're outside of the family. Be reconciled to God. How do you know that you can be reconciled to God? Verse 21, one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, he made him to be sin itself, who knew no sin. He's righteous in himself, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
How can we be ministers of reconciliation? Because Christ reconciled us. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. How do we reconcile divisions within the church? How do we reconcile differences between brothers? We have been given Christ's righteousness. We have been given the mind of Christ. We've been given his identity. We always talk about the indicatives coming before the imperatives, and I'm glad Christy brought that up earlier. So often we focus on what we do, not who we are. We must know who we are first, reconciled to God, given new life in Christ, the very righteousness of God and ambassadors of the ministry of reconciliation. That is who we are. That drives what we do. When you reverse it, you end up making things very difficult on yourself. Because then it becomes your effort, your strength, your ability. But if you stand on the work of Christ, you stand in his righteousness, knowing that God makes the appeal through you, it's so much easier for Paul to write a letter like this. And this is his masterful application of the gospel. This is Paul using the beautiful language of mediation and persuasion. And as humble as we've ever seen Paul. He's using the message of reconciliation that we learned in Colossians, that Jesus is reconciling all things to himself. And some of you, and you, who are dead, he has reconciled you to himself, make you holy and blameless. And out of that reconciliation, how dare you not be reconciled to one another? How dare you place petty temporal differences between eternal brotherhood, adoption in Christ? This is going to be the ideal of Paul as he approaches this. So we have to understand the basis for this letter before we can even read the letter. So now, if you would, turn to the book of Philemon, which is the last of Paul's epistles right before the book of Hebrews. It's probably a page or less in your Bible. I'm going to read the entire book. So this, I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. So this morning, we're going to look at a couple major themes. We're going to deal with verses 1 through 7. And then next week, we're going to unpack the rest. But I want to read through the whole book. I want you to get the idea and the argumentation here. And then uh, I want to look at a couple major themes before we get into the text itself. Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. 
but I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this purpose, for this, excuse me, for this perhaps is why he has parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of you owing me even your own life, your own self. Same word here. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will graciously, I'll be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. O oh God, my God, I remember all of your amazing works. You created all things to glorify your name, you created us in your image. And the greatest work is that of sending your Son to reconcile to himself wretched sinners like us separated forever because of our nature and our choices, but reconciled to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Thank you for this reconciliation. We praise you for the ministry of reconciliation and forgive us when we do not stand boldly on our identity, when we do not stand tall in this ministry of reconciliation, knowing that it is you who works, it is you who completes, It is you who transforms. And when you make your appeal through us, you get the glory. Forgive us of our pride, our stubbornness, our desire to be recognized, our desire to people please. Give us hearts to please you. Let us be a people known for unity, living out our adoption, who confidently, joyfully sit in the house of our Father, knowing we will be with him forever through our Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of our God, I pray. Amen. So this book is a clear application of what we've learned in Colossians. This, how does this reconciliation work out within the church? Whether you are master or slave, these external distinct distinctions are gone. Now you may keep the title, but in Christ you are one. And so this unity we see worked out in this eternal family. And so we, when we read passages like the one in Colossians, now if you want to keep your finger in Colossians, we're going to go back and forth, and you are going to need your Bibles this morning. So hopefully you have your Bibles in your hand. Hopefully you are paying attention. But Colossians, just a few books earlier. The passage that we spent some time on, um, I, want us to, I want us to be reminded of how Paul instructs slaves and masters. So we're looking at Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 22. 
Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. He expands more on that in Ephesians chapter 6. But as I read this and as I read the letter before us, I wonder did Paul have that in mind? These are written at the same time, sent by the same messenger. I believe he did. This common instruction about slaves and masters comes up often. And so we ask, how is this worked out in the church? How does Paul teach how to apply this, this doctrine? And so I think at first we have to address the institution of slavery in that culture. Because so often it's easy to read our experience and our education back into a letter written that was not written to us and not written in our culture. And so I want to dig into the slavery dynamic and I want to uh, explain the category slave. Because it's important to get it from, from their dynamic and understand who Onesimus was as a slave in the house of Philemon. But also why our translation, many of them now are using bondservant. So the word doulos in, in Greek, it means slave, but slave has a little different connotation there. In our study in Deuteronomy, we've seen that Israel had provision for the slaves, that those who, who worked in the household would be treated a certain way. And, and so bondservant is a much more accurate translation because it's not the conception that we have in our minds of, of, of subhuman forced labor. It was a servant role within the house. And so, one, I want to look at the similarities, but then the, the, the differences as well. And so, how was this understood in the, in the ancient world? So, the similarities are, they were an economic asset. They were owned by someone else. Uh, they did have a value. They could be bought and sold. And, of course, the, the dignity that the servants were shown was dependent on the master. But the difference is, this was not a lifelong enslavement. The difference is that this, they were never seen as less than human. This had nothing to do with, with race. Every tongue, tribe, and nation had some who were enslaved, and they, most of them were paid. And, so, and there was the opportunity to gain or earn your freedom out of this. So when we picture chains in forced labor and, and things like that and imperialistic slavery is a little different back then because most of the slaves were like Onesimus. Most of them lived within their master's house. They were dressed by their master, and they had to represent their master. They would go to the market and buy supplies and even negotiate on behalf of the master. So many of them were uh, highly respected and highly, highly valued. The entire Greco-Roman system was, was built on the in, this institution of slavery in that the, it, it's like the equivalent of kind of our minimum wage in that if you did not have someone to, to start at the bottom and do these menial jobs for a particular time, a lot of things would not get done. And so this was a, a big part of, of their, their culture. And in many instances, they could earn a better living with their, their masters than they could in freedom. Many slaves who earned their freedom end up being in abject poverty because they could not work their way up through, through the culture. And those, as we went through in Deuteronomy as well, if your master treated you well, they may dedicate themselves to their master for their entire lives because they know 
that my master is going to treat me better than being out there on my own. So this is hard for us to understand, but I want to give you a couple of examples. So this morning we're going to look at a slave named Onesimus. There's another slave named Onesimus who rose from the rank of slave to governor in one of the major provinces in Rome in the middle second centuries, about 100 years after this is written. So slaves could be governors. Slaves could work their way up through the, the socioeconomic systems. And one, the major example we have in Scripture is, is, is Joseph. We read from Genesis 45 earlier. In our corporate prayer this morning, we read from Genesis 50. Now Joseph was, if you don't know the story, the very quick highlights are his brothers were very jealous of their younger brother who the father loved more than them. No one's ever seen that happen since then. It's the only time it's ever happened in history. But they wanted to kill him. They didn't kill him. They sold him into slavery. These slave traders take him to Egypt, and he's in jail for years. Then when he gets an opportunity to come out and and, um, give the meaning of, of dreams, he falls into the favor of Pharaoh, works his way up, becomes number two in the most powerful empire in the world at that time. Now, that kind of turns our conception of slavery on its head, because if a slave can become number two to Pharaoh, and even Joseph says, I become a father to Pharaoh, meaning I give counsel to the one who rules all things on earth. And that is a great example of how God can take something that seems menial, that seems demeaning, that seems that it should not be, and he used that. What his brothers meant for evil, God chose for good so that Joseph's family could be redeemed, so that Israel would have food, so they would not starve, so a remnant of God's people would be preserved. And from that remnant would come the one who would preserve and save our lives. So we have to understand that. We often have to understand that Paul often calls himself a slave and a servant, and gladly. I'm a slave. I'm a servant for Jesus Christ. And he gives one other piece of important instruction for us to understand this institution. Because what happens is when you become new in Christ, and we all know this as young believers, you think everything's going to change. Oh, I don't have to go to work tomorrow. Jesus paid it all. You still got to go to work. You, you, you still got to be who you are in society. And Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 7. And he addresses this particularly. I think this is helpful for how we deal with this letter as we, we walk through it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 17. Only let each person, here's some page turning, I'll let you get there. 1 Corinthians seven seventeen. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him. It's easy to say, well, this is beneath me. I shouldn't be doing this. Where you are, God has assigned you. God will use you wherever you are. This is my rule in all the churches. We're still in the church. means the rule still applies. Was anyone at the time he was called already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. I don't know how you do that. Was anyone at the time of his calling uncircumcised? Let him seek Let him not seek circumcision, thank the Lord. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you gain, he's like, if you're not, don't be stupid now. Don't be concerned about being a bondservant. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. Make sure you do it. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man in the Lord. Likewise, he was free when he was called as a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. 
So the big question people have, and they ask this all the time, one of the most popular questions about Scripture is, why does the, Bi- the Bible condone slavery? Well, you have to understand, slavery is different. But the Bible doesn't seek to abolish slavery. That This has never entered the minds of the church. They were a small, impoverished minority. They were never thinking to petition Caesar to abolish slavery. The Bible does not condemn slavery or seek to abolish it because our identity is not in this world. We are bond servants of Christ. So whether you serve an earthly master or you own your own business, you are still serving your master in heaven either way. And so the focus of the church was never to be in in temporary circumstances. You may serve for a while in a role you think is beneath you, but you will reign with Jesus Christ forever. That is to be your identity. You are his. You are adopted into his family. And so if you are in the family of the king, if you have to serve with the jesters for a while, you take it gladly because you know it is only temporary. And so we have to be careful not to read our sensitivities in this. So hopefully that's all out. But I don't want to distract from the purpose of this letter. The purpose of this letter is Christian unity, brotherhood, reconciliation. One Greek word that kind of brings those together and will come up a couple times in our letter, koinonia, fellowship. It's kind of hard to to, to translate, but it, it really means to have in common. The Greek language that our Bibles were translated out of is Koine Greek. It is the, the common Greek. And so this, this fellowship is what we have in common, our identity, our adoption. This is the basis of how we approach disagreements, how we approach a master and slave, and how Paul seeks to bring them together. So in our letter of Philemon, so I joked about this last week, and I tell you, there's a mental block for me. I've heard Philemon my whole life. So I've been repeating over and over and over again the Greek pronunciation, Philemon, Philemon. And so I'm like, all right, Philemon, Philemon. That's, that's, that's what I have to do to, like, to get that to, to stick in my head. So if I can think of steak, I can remember. Um, now you can remember too. So I want to look at these, these players. First, beginning with Philemon. Um, verse 1, Paul addresses this to him. So we know that he's converted under Paul. Verse 19, that he's wealthy enough to own slaves. And he's wealthy enough to have the church meet in his home. But he's also loving and well-regarded by many. When Paul speaks about the faithfulness of the church in in Colossae, he uses the same terms to speak about Philemon. That he, as being a leader, he as being the host, the the one who who is hospitable to the churches, or to the the church meeting in his house, exemplifies these things. Um, And we've got Apthea. So this, this list here. To Philemon, our fellow worker, to Apphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier. Uh, we don't know exactly who she is, who they are, but there's, there's a common agreement that they're probably family. Apphia is probably his wife, and then Archippus is, is probably his son. Now, so Archippus, we saw at the end of Colossians, he's given a specific ministry. Paul singles him out. Make sure you are faithful in the ministry that has been given to you. So not only is he probably the son of Philemon, but he's probably also one of the, the pastors or, or young leaders within the church. And he is exhorted by Paul. And we know that he's doing something important because the, the term fellow soldier is applied to him. This is not just a regular worker. A soldier has committed his life to serve his king. This is who Archippus is, is seen by Paul. Someone who pledges his, his life to live and die for the king. So this is written to Philemon and his family, but also the church in his house. 
And this, this is important, that this issue, he's writing about one person, one private situation between two people. And so it's interesting that this private situation is now to be displayed in front of the entire church. This is vital. Because if there's a disagreement between two brothers, there's going to be an effect for the rest of the church. When one suffers, we all suffer. And so this is written to be read publicly. I know this is between you two, but he's teaching the church to work out your, your disagreements with the entire church in mind, knowing that it is, it is unity and reconciliation that is most important to the Apostle Paul. Then later on, he's going to bring up Onesimus. Onesimus, we saw last week in Colossians that he's a faithful brother and worker. He traveled with Tychicus to carry these, these letters, but pre-Christ, he's a servant in Philemon's house. We don't know what he did. Uh, he ran away. Paul uh, insinuates that there might be a debt and that Paul will pay it himself. So he probably was not a good servant. He probably was not faithful. If you were a good servant, you would still be in your house and not in Rome finding sanctuary with Paul. This is one of those instances where you could be put to death for stealing from your owner. So there's a lot at play here and a lot at stake for Onesimus. But we also know that he's converted in Rome by Paul. We see that in verse 10. Paul calls him a son. Paul says, I'm his father. This, this, this language of he's been brought into the, the, the family and I helped to birth him. And so I've raised him as a son. But he also is a slave. He also is a bondservant. He also belongs to Philemon, another brother. So Paul, being consistent in his teaching, sends him back to have them reconciled. And then we've got the writer of the letter, Paul, who is a brother to both and a father to both, being responsible for their, their conversion. He says later on, you owe me your, your very self, essentially saying you would not be converted if it wasn't for me. And so Paul sees his relationships as spiritual. These are now brothers in Christ, one a son and another a son, being a father to both, and he's trying to get his boys to, to get along. And we can't forget faithful Tychicus, who was traveling, took these, these, these letters and traveled all over, but now traveled with Onesimus back to Colossae. So we've got the letter for Colossians, the letter for Ephesians, all three of them brought together, each handed out individually. So the letter for Colossians is read before the whole body because it meant to encourage them. This is directed to Philemon, but still addressed to the entire body. So couple little things I want to pull out in the first seven verses here, and there's something important. The main themes of this letter and the, 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 driving, um, the driving force of this letter is the love that we see repeated, the, the love between brothers, the refreshed hearts that comes up several times, that, that Philemon um, refreshes the hearts of the believers, and that he asked, Paul asked Philemon to refresh his heart. So there's a, a stirring up of the, the inner selves of God's people. And then there's this familial language. Paul uses brother many times. He uses father. He uses son. This is a language of, of adopted children trying to work out their differences for the glory of their, their father in heaven. And I broke this up the way I did, and we're covering verses 1 through 7 for an interesting reason. Because in verses 1 through 7 is nothing but compliments. For Philemon. So he leads with commendation and he leads with encouragement before the ask. There's an old 
saying that an old song that a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. This is essentially what's going on here. Even though now our medicine is more sugar than medicine and it still tastes like medicine. But what Paul is doing here is shows him that he cares. Shows him that he recognizes that you are a good and faithful brother. And I want to commend you for what you're doing. And on the basis of what you're doing, now I will ask you for something in return. Going back to who we are drives what we do. The indicatives for Christians always precede the imperatives. Who we are. You are a faithful brother. You are a loving servant in the body of Christ. And because you are, I know I can ask this. And I don't have to even be bold. So this is a beautiful commendation to Philemon. Um, almost identical to what we see in Colossians. So the first thing we're going to notice in the first three verses, what is repeated more than anything else, those of you who are very detailed, and is also repeated more than anything else, but our. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. And Apphia, our sister. And Archippus, our fellow soldier. And the church in your house. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does he repeat that so many times? Because he's, he's bringing to attention their unity, not their individuality. He's connecting them to one another. Timothy's my brother and he's your brother too. Apphia is your sister in Christ, she's my sister in Christ too. And so he's, he's setting up here that the, the, the unity and the cohesion of the church is more important than their individuality. And so he, he brings the believers together and he says, our, our, our. Because as you work this out, we are working this out together because we are one in Christ. So, a few things in each verse. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. I love what he does here. Because he may be a prisoner of Caesar, but he is a prisoner for Christ. He's not there because God is no longer in control. He is there because he's doing it for Christ. He is there for the gospel. He is, in fact, in prison in the spiritual sense for Christ. As he, as he said before in 1 Corinthians 7, that if you are a bondservant, you are now a slave to Christ. I'm a slave to Christ. I'm a prisoner for Christ, and I'm glad to be there. Martin Luther says that, that, that Paul surrenders his rights to encourage Philemon to surrender his as master. If I can surrender my rights as a freeman for the gospel, you can surrender your rights as master to show mercy to your servant. I think he's right there. So we, we get the uh, family names to Philemon, our, our, our brother, fellow, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, and fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Remember, the church is not a building or a brand. There were no church buildings in this day. There were no church brands in this day. It was the church gathered. The church is the people. And so when he addresses this, he addresses this to the true church so that they know that these implications have implications for the, for the whole body and that you must come together. And the divisions within the church affects the whole. Verse 3. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He begins and ends with grace. Verse 25, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you in spirit. And we talked about this last week. Grace is a uniquely Christian idea. No other religion, no other worldview can understand grace. 
If you have not been forgiven of your sins, if you have not been brought from death to life, if you do not understand that you deserve death, you cannot understand grace. It is a uniquely Christian idea. Peace is a uniquely Hebrew idea. Peace, as we've seen before, shalom, it means wholeness, it, it means perfection, it means completeness in God. You are lacking nothing. Bringing together the grace that we have through Christ Jesus, the peace that he earned on the cross, reconciling us to God so that we might have shalom, fullness, wholeness in him. This is a beautiful exhortation to the church, both Christian and Hebrew bringing these, these things together. And then he gets into his commendation of Philemon. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. We continue the theme of thankfulness. How many times did Paul say he was thankful in Colossians? I am thankful for you. I am thankful for the work of God. Be thankful for the peace that you have. Be thankful for his word. Be thankful that you can, that you can rejoice in him. Do all things for Jesus Christ and be thankful. Paul also speaks of how he prays for people, and I love what we learn about Paul from the way he prays. Look at these words here. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. I remember you in my prayers. Paul's not just praying for the situation. He's praying for the person. He cares for Philemon. I always remember you. I remember you. I know you. Even though I'm in my jail cell, I know of, of your reputation, and I pray for you often. I pray for you always. It made me think, how often do we thank God for others? How often in your prayer times do you take a moment out of your own laundry list and your, your Christmas list to say thank you for this person? Thank you for their faithfulness. Thank you that through them the church is refreshed and encouraged in their house. How often do you just remember others in your prayers? This is how Paul is an example for us, and we can easily skip over this. I remember you always. I thank, God, I thank my God always when I remember you in, in my prayers. We get a glimpse into Paul's prayer life, that he prays often, and he prays fervently. He struggles for them in prayer, as we saw in Colossae, but thanking God for the work of others, which should be a mark of our prayers. I said this last week, to pray more for others than you pray for yourselves give you another challenge this week. Find how many people you can thank God for. Find how many people you can thank God for in your prayers and praise him for their work and what he is doing through them. Verse 5, very similar to what we see in Colossians 1. I'm going to read it real quick if you want. You can turn there. Colossians 1, he says, very similar words. In, in Philemon, we get... Because I hear of your love and the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus Christ and for all the saints. Look what he says in Colossians. Verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Philemon is associated with the character in Colossae, as we saw just a moment ago. He's a big reason for that. They meet in his house. He's a, he's a respected brother. He's, he's a pillar in the church. And he is commended for the same thing that the church is, is commended for. And I love that there's this natural connection between faith and love. I hear of your love and the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus Christ and for all the saints. And how these, these two things are interchangeable. The love that you have for the saints. 
the faith that you have in Christ that, that, that drives the love. But there's a, a key phrase here that I think helps us with the rest of the letter. For all the saints. Because now Onesimus is a saint. He didn't leave a brother, but he's returning a brother. If you have love for all the saints, remember that. When this one who stole from you, most likely, and ran away from you, treat him as a brother when he returns. And so we must remember that first and foremost when we're dealing with believers. That they are saints. Because we are not dealing with sinners who sin. We are dealing with saints who sin. First and foremost, they are blood-bought members of the body of Christ. And yes, you are sinners, but your primary identity is not sinner. And so, so often it's easy for us to remember the sin. To remember how they, they, they fall short and identify them by their weakest and worst moments. But we must identify them as Paul does. Identify them as Christ does. Valuable enough to lay down his life for. They are saints set apart, his holy ones. Even when they don't look like it. And so that is a good reminder before he gets into the rest of this, this letter. And he says this beautiful statement here, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. If that sentence seems convoluted, it's really tough to translate. The word sharing here is that koinonia word from earlier. It's having in common. by the, the, the Not sharing as in witnessing but having a common faith with one another. If you share that faith with one another, it's a very complex statement. But the fellowship that you have in Christ equals a knowledge of every good thing for Christ's sake. So essentially, this is a great description of brothers in faith. That the faith that, that you share may become effective for full knowledge of every good thing that is in us. The, 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 the plural here. Our faith is so that we have knowledge and we share that. Every good thing that, that, that we share, that's what our faith is for in the church. We share our faith. We encourage one another for the sake of Christ. Because you were saved from your sins, me too. You were dead and lost and had no identity, me too. Christ pulled you up from the pit, me too. You will live with him forever, me too. This fellowship that we have in Christ unites us, and this is what Paul encourages, and Paul's beautifully setting up his appeal to reconcile with Onesimus. Then he closes here with, for I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because of the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. This is the gospel. The love of God leads to our faith. Our faith drives our love for one another, and our adoption in that, that family sees love so intertwined with our, with our faith that we see our brother as Christ sees them. And Paul finishes with the statement, my brother, he says, my brother often in this letter, doesn't let him forget it, but I think this is a, a true encouragement because the hearts of your saints have been refreshed through you. This in the Greek means your inner parts have been given rest. The hearts of the saints have been refreshed. What he means by that is his love and his hospitality and his example gives true rest to the saint, saints. And that brings Paul joy and that brings Paul comfort. The joy of the church becomes Paul's joy. Their comfort becomes his. Because in his jail cell, there's nothing to find comfort in. How do you find comfort in Christ? You see the love of brothers and sisters caring for one another. You see the refreshment and the encouragement of the saints. This 
is where Paul finds his comfort. He derives it from the church and Christ being glorified in their love for one another and being glorified in his brothers. So this is a beautiful setup to this letter. And this letter, we're going to unpack this more next week as we kind of walk through verse by verse of his argument. But this letter is so helpful for us. Just very practically speaking, if you are not in a disagreement right now with another brother or sister, you will be. Guaranteed. It's guaranteed with, with sinful people. If you have not had a dispute among the saints, consider yourself blessed. But you will. And it hurts more than anything because you love them. And you want to be united to them. But it is so difficult. But we must remember the grace that has been given to us. We must remember our own sin and our own lostness. We must remember that the, the, the peace that we have through our faith and the adoption into the family of faith. And the brothers, real brothers, will be brothers and sisters for eternity. If you have a hard time getting along with the saints now, eternity is going to be tough for you. You cannot get rid of us. That that is a beautiful thing. That as we work through our differences now, we do it in light of eternity. And if we remember this, if we apply the gospel to our relationships, there would be so much less hurt, so much less anger, so much less division in the church. Because you see the grace that Christ has shown you, the love that he has put in your heart, you apply to them, you see them as saints and brothers and sisters first, instead of someone who has wronged you first. So, quick conclusion. First, be reconciled to God. Apart from reconciliation to God, apart from repenting of your sins and turning to Christ, apart from becoming His righteousness because He became sin for you, forget everything I just said. This is not possible for you. My first and foremost appeal to you is be reconciled to God. Because in the reconciliation to God is forgiveness of sins and His life everlasting, but it is a new family. It is a new family that can love each other this way and care for one another this way. And our unity with Christ becomes our primary identity. Who we are, brothers in Christ, saints, this is first and foremost before anything else. And we cannot understand Christian brotherhood without our union with Christ. And we cannot live that out without understanding our adoption. And we cannot solve Christian division without true bonds built in fellowship over our adoption. We are brothers in God the Son, through God the Spirit, to the glory of God the Father. And through this, we can reconcile anything. Let's pray. Oh God, we praise you. We praise you as the God of reconciliation the God who is reconciling all things to himself, the God who would bring sinful orphans like us into his home, prepare a home for us, call us brothers of Christ, give us an inheritance that will not pass away. Lord, let this be our identity. Let this be what we stand on. Let us see our brothers and sisters in Christ in this same light. Let us see the saints sitting at the dinner table of our Father, the feast we will enjoy forever with you, that reconciliation is possible because you are the God of reconciliation. 
that we might be encouraged by the faithfulness of those we see around us. We use our faith as reason for love and patience because of the grace we have been seen through Jesus Christ and the peace that we have through God the Father. And this I pray in the mighty name of our God and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.